This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Connecting people working for cultural democracy in Europe and America, this is a culture of possibility. With Arlene Goldbard and Francois Matarasso. Welcome to episode three of A Culture of Possibility. I'm Arlene Goldbard, and I'm speaking to you from Lamy, New Mexico, in the southwest of the United States. And our co-host is... I'm Francois Matarasso. I'm speaking from uh, rural Burgundy in France. And we're delighted to have as our guest today, Claire Reynolds from Restoke. And Claire, just say a few words about yourself. Hello, I'm Claire from Restoke. I am here in Staffordshire in the UK. Okay, Claire, we first met, I think, three or four years ago when I came to see the screening of the film You Are Here that you did with, and the, the cast of the, of the production were there too. And it was a very special occasion actually even though it was a film but it was their first moment to see the film and see themselves and relive a bit the performance that they'd made uh, a little while earlier can you can you tell me a bit about the making of that production where where the idea came from and how you you involved the community yes of course so um you are here was in yeah back in 2016 and it came off the back of doing a few site-specific performances that involved people in Stoke-on-Trent alongside professional performers. Um, until that point, we had this real, a bit of a divide between the sort of stories we were telling through our work. So we always started with conversations and gathered people's stories. And we always worked with participation. So some people then joined us to kind of perform a piece that was created around those stories. But there was sometimes a disconnect between the people whose stories we were telling and the people who were performing in those shows. So You Are Here was a kind of step towards um, bringing those people together and going, can we really work with a group to tell their own stories and help them to shape the narratives and the way that they're told? Um, so we we started by having conversations with people who had moved to Stoke from other countries. Previously, our work had been, um, I guess, more with people who were kind of from Stoke originally, and their families were from Stoke because we were often working around historical buildings. So that was the sort of nature of who who kind of got involved in what we did. Um, but we wanted to kind of look at the more contemporary population of Stoke-on-Trent and, and people's kind of stories and journeys to the city. So we talked to people who'd moved here or been moved here, um, worked with some people who were um, refugees and asylum seekers, so been moved to Stoke in that process. And, um, and then kind of held some workshops, taster workshops. We held some events called Cult- the Culture Exchange, which was where people could come and bring something from their culture to share with a group. And they were really lovely little um, sharing um, events in their own right. And people bought food and costume and dance and song. And, and it was a, a kind of really beautiful thing. And it meant we could meet people that we hadn't met before and they could hear a bit about us and what we were doing. So we held three of them and then invited people to stay with us and go, does anyone want to come and explore these things more deeply around culture and belonging and how they felt about Stoke as a city? Um, so we kind of had some interested people. We brought them together with a venue, a building, 
and that building was an old college for the science and arts in a town of Stoke-on-Trent called Burslem. So a historic building that wasn't currently used. So we took people into the building, we explored it, we sang and danced in there, we said, what can we imagine happening in here? What could a show look like? How could we tell our stories in this building? And we kind of decided to make a promenade performance, which means the audience move around the building, going into different rooms. And in each room, they kind of experienced a different story. But we also use a lot of our main art forms, our dance and um, song, music. And it was the first time really actually we used people talking and talking their own words, their own stories that we helped them to, to kind of shape into a, into a really interesting way. Um, so, yeah, so that is a bit of potted history about You Are Here. And Claire, when you say we, who are you speaking of? Oh, so um, Restoke is run by myself and Paul Rogerson, who is also my husband, which is very convenient. Um, and um, and it's, it's mainly us. And when we are making a show, we might gather a few more people around us, so a professional team of performers. Um, we work with a producer now more regularly. But yeah, but Restoke was originally started by three artists. So it was myself and a visual artist and then Paul, who is a musician. One of the things that I liked about that show <clears throat> and that, that I could see both in the, in the film of the show, but especially from listening to people and talking to them afterwards, um, it really did evolve out of the interaction, out of who was there. And for me, that's that's one of the preconditions of making community art rather than participatory art. In other words, that that who is there can change what art is made. They actually have an input. But that's also a, a more difficult and challenging process. How how do you handle that? And how do you also handle the work working with people? and the uncertainty of not knowing what the final show would be, except that you've sold tickets for it and it's going to have to open the doors. Yeah, I think making this sort of work, I think my, I guess the biggest bit of advice I might give to other people is that you have to be okay with the uncertainty because the uncertainty is certain. <laughs> so there is no, that it is going to exist. And, and I know that some people have different levels of comfort with, with how much of that they can handle. And I suppose we've just got okay at the uncertainty and I can only imagine that's through working in community arts I never had a background making professional dance or professional theatre I only ever had a background in community dance so uncertainty you don't know who's going to turn up at the workshop you don't know who's going to turn up for the show the showcase the sharing so I'm pretty okay with uncertainty but also I think we've realised that the success in the, making these performances together is by keeping the doors open. So like an example from You Are Here, um, Aida, who's from Bosnia, um, kind of came along early on in the culture exchanges, but she was back and forth during that time to, to Bosnia. And um, so didn't think she'd be involved in the show, but she kind of kept popping in. And one day she popped in and um, she was like, oh, I've bought these... Um, diary entries and letters from from the war in, in in Bosnia that I was writing to my cousin who was who was somewhere else and they couldn't see each other and there was obviously a lot of um, traumatic things happening in, in where, where she lived and um, she kept a diary and um, so we were like 
could you read these? Like, would you like to read them as part of the performance? And so, you know, it doesn't matter if you're not here for all the rehearsals, but if you could be in one of these rooms and she had this certain image about um, the, all the glass shattering in the building that she lived that we just, you know, thought could be a really interesting... And in the story, she was folding washing and we were like, oh, this it feels like a really rich kind of story and an image and would you read out these letters? And she would, would was really happy to do that. And then one day she, she started sharing with one of the singers uh, a traditional kind of folk song and she had a beautiful voice. So we're like, could you sing that as well? And during this thing and she was like oh yeah okay so it's like very kind of and those things came quite you know way into the process we kind of started she'd not been there for a while and she came back and so I think just keeping the doors open to hearing the kind of stories and the rich kind of cultural expressions or people's creative skills that you might not see straight away you don't know what's in the room until you spend some time together so I think keeping those doors open for hearing a new story finding a new skill in the group is really important to what the end piece is and in You Are Here we never had the whole cast together until the dress rehearsal it was so last minute. One of the singers had to go back to Poland and she was working with Paul remotely on the song and music and flew back like last minute. So, you know, it was total, total chaos, really, the, the rehearsal process. But you just trust in it and you trust in the, the, the solid stuff that carries you through, the structures that you create. That you go, well, we know this is going to be here and people feel safe enough in that. And then the rest can just stay open to other things appearing and those lovely surprises that make it magic. So um, I watched the film of You Are Here, and it was quite beautiful. I really enjoyed it. I have this image stuck in my mind of opening the door on a brick wall, which is so powerful and, and evocative. But, you know, what I would, would take away for, from watching it is the feeling that there's an underlying intention that's, um, we're here too, you might be surprised to know us, what, what could you articulate? Like, what what is the importance for you of these stories getting into the larger community, other people seeing and experiencing them? Um, I think as our work's developed, we've tried to look for the stories that aren't being told. So um, Stoke-on-Trent has got a real kind of creative history in terms of the pottery industry and a lot of, like, projects and our early projects kind of I guess focused on that specific kind of heritage and and that that creative that creative history for the city and I think we were keen as we kind of progressed to go well what what stories aren't we hearing what is stoked to people now and what what does it mean and, and what is it like to be here to have moved here to have been moved here um so that was really important but also and this wasn't intentional but you are here was created during the EU referendum here in the in in this country and um, and Stoke on Trent had a really high Brexit vote. It was dubbed Brexit Town in the in the media and um, and so that kind of really galvanised it to be a really even more important for lots of those people who were um, um, migrants from from Europe who had I guess during that time a safe place to feel like they were welcome in Stoke where it might not feel like the most welcoming place at that time for those people and um and then coincidentally during the show week Theresa May who was prime minister at the time said that quote that was to be a citizen of the world is to be a citizen of nowhere and there was actually a line in you are here that was about that someone who said that as a point of pride for them so Beatrice who was from Venezuela who said she was really proud that her son was born in this country and he was a 
kind of a citizen of the world. And so that got translated into a piece of poetry that, that was delivered during the show. And people thought we'd put it in there at the last minute because it, it, was, a, it was a thing at the time. Um, but yeah, so, so we couldn't have really anticipated that politically, but I guess that made it even more important that we, that we were offering that counter-narrative in Stoke-on-Trent to being like, these stories are important and these people add so much to our, to our city and to our, our lives. It's interesting you mention that because you're, you're talking about a situation where people might feel quite vulnerable um, in that political context. And I wondered how you, how you help take care of and protect people's stories. It's quite an exposing thing to, to put someone's story on a stage. And I, I think Restoke does it with a lot of sensitivity and care, but I don't think that everybody who works with, in quotes, other people's stories has the same sensitivity that you do. So can you talk a bit about how how you manage those treacherous waters yeah of course um yeah it is it's something that we're always kind of reflecting on and thinking about and evolving and the reason during you are here we took this step into keeping people with us so not telling anyone else's stories that wasn't in the room that felt like our first step towards that of like that people were telling their own stories and they could have ownership over them so we never we never made like we ha- would have ideas and creative ideas and stories we felt like it might be really great to hear about and be really relevant but obviously it was always an option um so i guess there's a few things that we do in the earlier stages when we have interviews with people a conversation that we might record we're always very clear about how we use people's stories and information and we always have a little get out clause that people can withdraw themselves their stories their information at any point during the project and we say to people it could be like tomorrow or it could be the night before we're due to go on stage so it's like and again that's a risk to 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 the whole work but nothing people's stories and their how they feel about sharing them is more important than the product that you know restoke make um so that's really important and we always tell people that that you know it's their 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 stories and that that takes precedent over the work Um, And then the other thing is just working slowly. So it's not like inviting people into a rehearsal process. You know, we do have these meetings, these events, conversations, little conversations in between time, emails, kind of creative weekends where we spend a bit more time together. Eating together has become a very important thing that during those, those more intensive chunks of time that we eat together, there's conversations that are happening. And, um, and what happens usually, because everyone's singing and dancing together as well and sharing their stories and being quite vulnerable with each other, is the group of people create their own beautiful support network and they really look after each other. So we kind of have to really, we really care, obviously, are careful about how we look after people and create the culture within the group just gently along the way and then they kind of seem to pick that up and by the time the show's there, they're all kind of really looking after each other and keeping each other safe and supported. I want to ask you a simple question, but a, but a difficult one as well, which is how do stories become art? What's the difference between somebody simply telling their story 
and it becoming something that has the qualities of art? Um, so I think, I suppose a lot of our role, like me and Paul, who direct the shows and maybe add in some of the other bits, like Paul composes all the music as well and kind of underscores, you know, might be underscoring someone's story with music. And I suppose we talk about our job a bit as like framing, so we kind of frame people's stories. So sometimes it is as simple as someone telling their story, but it might be that they've told it in a casual way in in a workshop leading up to it and we've gone oh do you think we could like work together to help you tell that in front of people or they might have sent us an email going this is all my thoughts on that so especially in a later show which is in man up and working with men they came through lots of different ways and some quite late in the process where someone just sent like this huge email and was like this is what I've been thinking about about masculinity and then we've gone could you pretty much say that in the show? Or could you, or for someone who really liked working with poetry, could you create a piece of poetry, spoken word poetry, about that? And then we, as kind of directors with, I guess, a different lens of, artistic lens of making shows, we think about how to frame it. But again, that's a collaborative process that we also might take other people's ideas and go, how do you think your story could be told or seen? Or what, you know, what sort of music would you like it to be underscored with? And we work with dance a lot and so like what dance surrounds it and then looking at the different stories we're telling and how we kind of find the thread throughout it because as well as like you can put someone's story in a totally different context and it comes with a totally different meaning the music that you choose to underscore it can change the story the how an audience will receive that story totally so it's always got to be kind of a, a collaboration between the kind of artists involved and the and how people kind of perceive their or want their stories to be heard or told. So let's just go to background for a little bit, because I I love what you're saying about your methods, your approaches, and I'm wondering how you came to it. Like, are you and Paul from Stoke, or how how did you come to work there, and what was your intention in in founding with your colleague, uh, Rhys Stoke? Myself and Paul and Sarah, who was one of the other founding artists, um, we all grew up in Stoke-on-Trent or just outside Stoke-on-Trent. So we are from here, you know, we went to college here and went away to various places to train. So I trained as a dancer um, at um, Trinity Laban in London, came back to Stoke, ended up working in community arts and the same, and so met Paul and the community art circuit. He was doing music and making music with various people and Sarah was a visual artist. And um, so, yeah, so I did lots of community dance for, for years and and then and then me and Sarah and Paul our first collaboration was an arts and regeneration commission from the local council and we did a project about public benches so we interviewed people who were using public benches and talked about people's feelings about the regeneration of Stoke and their relationship with the city and we created a piece I created a piece of dance and there was a piece of artwork and music score and um and we kind of performed it. Also, we, the artwork went on the side of buses that were going around the Stoke, so we had it on 15 buses. So that was our first kind of collaboration. Um, and then from there, we, we made very small, always site-specific shows, and I think that was because there were very few arts venues in Stoke-on-Trent, so even if we'd wanted to make performance for stages, they, those places weren't there. Um, so we start, We worked outdoors and then we worked in old buildings. We worked in an old factory, um, an old pottery factory, in an old chapel, a swimming pool. Um, and and it, it pretty soon, even though it started with just maybe three of us or maybe just working with kind of professional or emerging performers, it quite quickly 
moved into participation because that was what we all did so it never kind of made sense to just work with professional performers but also what what made the big difference is audiences because there are not big audiences specific like I'm from a contemporary dance background and there are not big contemporary dance audiences in the city so by working with people like lots of people then you got lots of audience because people came to see their people come and 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 be in a show so that really helped us build up a reputation and got people really interested in our work and and then I think as we moved on we wanted to make work that was tackling kind of social issues and storytelling but going right back to the benches project I think and what we know about and love about Stoke is that people love telling their stories like Stokies will tell you their life story on a bus and um and so and it's also got all these this really amazing old buildings that are disused. So kind of those two things, storytelling, old buildings, bringing those things together, I guess, was, was where it all came from. And wanting, wanting to make exciting stuff happen in Stoke-on-Trent because it has got a bit of a bad reputation. It's not portrayed well in the media. We, we know all its good and bad bits. And we wanted to go, why can't this great stuff happen in Stoke? So it's interesting. I was going to ask you that question because what I've observed is that often people who come from a place and then come back there to do this work, one of the animating impulses is feeling misunderstood, feeling devalued, or you know, feeling that the story of the place is not really being told. Um, it's such a powerful force, you know, for uh, people who are listening in the states and don't have a clue about what the uh, support system and the infrastructure and everything is in, in the UK. Could you just say a little bit, how, how has Restoke been supported in its work? So um, the Arts Council England have been our main supporters. So we've always had to apply for, for public funding for everything that we've, that we've done. Um, when we started, which was in 2009, there was a bit more money in the local authority so that we could apply for from Stoke-on-Trent City Council to support the work and we worked quite a bit in regeneration in the early days so got some funding through that but as with everywhere in the UK that's become a lot harder in the time we've been working um, so yes we really rely on public funding so Arts Council and a couple of other arts funders and now I suppose as our work's developed we've moved into being able to attract funding from kind of social funders so not art specific but um, funders who are looking at um, kind of social change or impact and well, people's well-being, really. But it's fair to say that it's always been project funding until very recently. So you've, you've never had the security of, of having regular funding before. Yes, yes, that's right. So we've always we've been a project-based organisation until early last year. Um, we, we, we got some core funding for a couple of years, which, yeah, is a, was a huge thing after working project to project for, for well, all our lives, <laughs> really. And the the other big change for you is you've taken on a building from being an organisation working entirely from project to project, each project being funded independently and each finding its own space and its own community to work with. You're now taking on the restoration of a historic building and turning that into a community art space. So tell us a bit about what your your plans and dreams are for this space but also how you think it might change your work yeah of course so we i guess over the last um few years we've 
try to have more ongoing stuff happening in between our shows. So our shows have only happened every other year because there's so much that kind of goes into obviously the the gathering, well, the fundraising, the gathering of people and the stories and the... So, so it's normally about a 12 month process from starting talking to people to performing and then with fundraising in between that means that our shows have happened every other year and um, and after I'd say after you are here particularly the, we had a real realization that that everything stopping at the end of a show just just wasn't wasn't great there was no kind of legacy but the funding was all gone and people who had been part of that process wanted to carry on doing something together but also people who came as an audience were like oh like where can I get involved I want to do this and so our next show which was Man Up we we made sure that there was a, a kind of real legacy program that, that followed that that because that project was about masculinity and mental health so there's a program called Up Men which is about creating more kind of creative opportunities around those those themes um, and then we've started doing creative workshops for children so creative dance workshops for children um, that are free uh, or like pay what you can because there's a lot of kind of economic barriers for some people in the city to take part in creative activities um, and just trying to do more yeah more ongoing stuff so there was opportunities for people who might not be able to be in the big shows because it might not connect to their life experiences or that might just be a bit too much for them so trying to do like smaller ongoing programs of work and um, venues has always been a huge barrier so even in our shows we work in these beautiful buildings but often they don't have heating or <laughs> great toilet facilities so we always have to find rehearsal venues or like meeting places and workshops and that's always been like taken up a huge amount of our time is finding venues working at our availability around those places um, so for us it's always been like a bit of a dream to go oh wouldn't it be great if we had our place and we can also then really be careful around the the culture of the place and how people are welcomed into that place and and how they feel when they get there and um because sometimes when you're working in other venues those things can be compromised and as you are telling more vulnerable perhaps stories or more emotionally charged stories it feels really important that you look at the environments that you're working in and how safe people might feel in those places so we've been kind of dreaming about this for a long time just on a practical basis of having somewhere to invite people when we want to kind of gather new groups of people um and then last year um when we got some core funding, that was that was a, a aim that we said, a goal that we were going to work towards. And then when the pandemic hit and our activity had to stop, it actually became a really good time to really start to think about that. And and we we went back to a place that we already knew about, which is an old town hall in Fenton, which Stoke-on-Trent is made up of six towns. So it's, it's not like a conventional city, Fenton it being one of those towns that had this old town hall that had been um, recently kind of come into the hands of the great-grandson of the architect because it was turned into um, courtrooms by the Ministry of Justice. So it's it's been a magistrate's court since the 1960s. Um, and then the, he'd kind of managed to get the building back up and running, the community cafe, some community businesses. But on the first floor, there was an old ballroom that had been turned into individual courtrooms. So this whole massive amount of infrastructure had been shoved into this, like, Victorian ballroom but it was all it was still there you know waiting to be unveiled so we were like this could be the perfect place because it's already got a community around it it's already it's an important place for that local community they really they they um occupied the building they protested against it being sold off by the Ministry of Justice um, and then it was saved by the the great-grandson of the architect 
But um, so it just it started to feel more appealing. So we had conversations with the building owner and talked about like if we kind of raise some funds, can we get a you know some rent free time in in and lease this this space? And we kind of made a great agreement with him. And then we managed to get funding from the Arts Council to for that restoration and also use some of the money that we got as core funding from Esme Fairburn. So we are in the process now of restoring it. So all the courtroom structures have gone. You can now see the beautiful vaulted ceiling and some of the original paintwork and the timber dance floor because it was a space that was made for dancing, which, you know, for me is just just a dream. And, and it also means that, you know, we're not having to repurpose a building as a place for singing and dancing and celebration and community because that is its core purpose. So it just aligns really beautifully, I guess, with our, our own aims. So yes, yeah, so we're in the process of restoring it. And, and then the idea is that we are going to take people through a co-creative process in that building. So we're kind of trying to approach it the same way we would approach a show, by kind of organically, slowly, keeping the doors open, talking to people, finding out their hopes and wishes for that place, and, um, and then involving them in creative you know, tasks or explorations of it, and coming up with a programme together, but also coming up with, I guess, a... You know the kind of prince, the guiding principles of the place. Like, what's it for? How do people want to feel when they when they visit it? What do they want to see happening there? And yeah, so that's that's as far as we've got. We're trying not to become a kind of impenetrable venue, and then you know our time is running a venue. We want it to be fluid and open and community orientated, but we can also use it for a base for us to keep creating, you know, and, and stay artistic. It's, and I'm sitting here feeling how strange it is to be talking about bricks and mortar during the pandemic, right? Because uh, it's I haven't been in a building other than my own house in a really long time. So what have you guys been doing during this period where you couldn't, where you had to practice social distancing? How have you been keeping your work up and your community connections up? So we have been doing a lot of Zoom workshops. So um, our children's kind of workshops all moved onto Zoom last year and have, you know, been there ever since. Um, and and then the Up Men Legacy work is, is happens on Monday evenings on Zoom. Paul runs singing workshops and poetry workshops um, with that group. We were meant to be making a show with mothers last year. So our, our show last year would have been about motherhood with mothers in Stoke. And we've tried to keep some of that work going remotely, sending out kind of creative packs to mothers in Stoke-on-Trent, trying to kind of focus because there was a lot of stuff for children with children being off and homeschooled. So we were trying to go, well, what do, how can we still engage mothers in creativity that's not about their children? Um, and, and then just trying to... Well, I guess a lot of our effort has gone into the ballroom then, kind of the logistics, the fundraising. So actually, if we'd been running activity at a normal level outside the house, we probably wouldn't have been able to get things moving as quickly as we have because it meant we could just put all our efforts into fundraising and making that happen. And then Paul's been project managing. And and the ballroom, the work has continued throughout lockdown because construction work can. So he's done a lot remotely but managed to um to keep that that restoration going and and yeah and now we're just just trying to make a plan for I guess when we might be able to bring people back together but it is strange talking about bricks and mortar because lots of people are kind of thinking about the uses of venues and going are these <laughs> how useful are venues now and lots of people moving out of offices but I think we feel like 
in Stoke-on-Trent there's not those many places for people to gather and um, and so I think one thing that we'll need as part of our community's recovery is like places for togetherness and it feels like well the ballroom is is hopefully going to be one of those places. One of the things I I admire about what you do is that you're you're very clear that you have I suppose I mean a political vision with a small p and I'm using but I'm I'm using that word deliberately because you say you know on the front page of your website that you make performances and plan events that tackle social issues and the that that kind of the social issues whether we're talking about people migrating uh to the UK to Stoke whether we're talking about masculinity mental health or motherhood they're very upfront and they're very present they they give a a reason and a purpose to to what you're doing but and you also are very uh committed and creative to how you evaluate and report on on your work but at the same time um it seems to me i don't ever get the sense that i get from sometimes uh from this work that uh you think you're doing anybody any good if you see what I mean it, it isn't you're making art with people and that has social resonance and political resonance if you you know if you talk about issues like um as you were talking about in the context of, of Brexit and migration or you talk about mental health and, and masculinity it has political resonance but I don't ever get the sense that Restoke see themselves as as doing good to people and I'm, I appreciate that distinction. Yeah it's, it's a really interesting one actually because especially as our work moves into more like I said about fundraising from I guess social funders we're often encouraged to think about impact and change and and we're, we're working on something at the minute that really is challenging us to ask us like what change we are trying to make and I find that so hard to think about because I think you know the feeling of that we're trying to change people or something even though I think we talk about inspire we try and talk about inspiring change because we we don't set out to like have a certain impact or a certain change but we just know that through taking part in these creative projects that they do change people they do inspire you know change they make new connections but but we definitely never want to say that this is it and this is it's a prescribed change or it's a done to change because yeah it's definitely about like doing it and also that we get as much out of it as the people who are involved so every project I learn so much about you know about so many different people's life experiences so it's definitely not like a kind of selfless act at all and and what I really like as well as leaving room for the unexpected for the surprise like changes or impact that you could never have predicted so there was a really lovely one around um, Man Up we made Man Up at a working men's club in Stoke-on-Trent I'm not sure if you have working men's clubs in the US but yeah I think people you... will know what it is okay great so um so very much associated with kind of working class um, and it, the industries in Stoke which were coal and um, pottery and steel um, so there's not many of these places left and we were working there and, and that meant that we met lots of people that we wouldn't normally meet who became audiences um, 
And, and and we started working there after we'd, I guess, gathered the men who were going to be involved in that show. But after one of the first rehearsals, when we moved into that phase, we were sitting outside and one of the regular um, kind of people who, who drank at the bar or the working men's club was outside and asked us what we were doing. And I sat out there with two of the male dancers, young male dancers, and... Um, and we told him what the, the themes of the show were and he kind of really opened up about his own mental health and, and some things that he'd gone through kind of quite recently and and we just kind of chatted to him and, and Frankie and Reese, the, the young dancers, were just brilliant, you know, just really kind of held space for him to talk about what he was going through and kind of empathised with him and, you know, and then he kind of, he went off and, and thanked us for the chat and, and then we didn't see him again until the show and he came to see the show and he brought with him a metal sculpture that said man up that he had made because he said he tried to quit drinking and he made us this sculpture you know to, to distract himself from not drinking and he came with his wife and his wife told Frankie and Reese the, the male dancers that she thinks that they'd saved his life that day in the beer garden of a working men's club because just by saying we're here we're making a show about masculinity and mental health he talked to us and he said to us he said like I wouldn't talk to like I haven't told doctors this I wouldn't talk to anyone about this and apparently that day he'd gone home carried on opening up to his partner and then that had kind of led him to a series of events that kind of took him on a different path and they both really attributed that to that conversation and kind of thanked those dancers for for saving his life and you just think oh we never could have predicted that that's one of those like magic you know stories that you just go and that was just through the consequence of being there it wasn't through anything we set out to do we never set out to save anyone's life to solve any like masculinity crisis or mental health crisis we were just opening opening up the conversation and I think that's what we were set out to do we set out to open up conversations about things and hear some different stories and that will lead people in all sorts of different directions. It's, it's so interesting what you're saying about trying to get the funding from the sort of social service-oriented people along these lines, too, because over here, at least, they're addicted to quantification, you know, so they want you to, like, line up a bunch of numbers to show how you've acted up, upon these people that you're working with. And the story you're telling is, is so powerful because it does name a change, but the change it names is to be heard. You know, that's the difference. And this is why, for me, I see so many, um, so much continuity between your work and the work of community arts in, the, in its early days, because there is, there is a commitment that change happens, but it's not, it happens because of what you do, not because you make the change happen. In other words, you do the, you create the art, you create the projects and change follows. And it follows in all kinds of, of complex ways, but it is empowering rather than disempowering. And I think there are other things that, that, that uh, speak to that connection for me. One is the fact you've got the name of Stoke in your, in your own organisation. And that, that was very characteristic of the early community arts organisations. Um, and it's about a relationship with a place and a long-term commitment and, and a community. And the other thing, I think, is that you have a, a, a flexibility and an openness. You are making artworks, which is certainly what I 
I tried to do when I was working full-time in a community art. Uh, even when I worked in one place, we would go from one project to the next because actually we were drawn by the idea of what are we making here. And not naming your company or not stating what the artistic form that Restoke has is another part of that importance because it gives you a flexibility to say, you know, your next project might be an exhibition. Who knows? You know, you, you have that possibility. Whereas if you were called Restoke Dance Company or whatever, it would already set up a narrowing of the possibilities. Whereas as it is, I, everything that you're saying is speaks to me about the listening and the responding and the working with um, rather than almost that you have a prescription that you then apply to situations and, and worse sometimes to people. So I, I, for all of those reasons, it, 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 it really speaks to me. Which is what we mean by a culture of possibility, right, Francois? Mm. So, <laughs> Claire, you're, you're gratifying us by being the embodiment of this value that, that's, that's driving this podcast. The, uh, I wanted to ask you about something else a little off to the side, but it really interests me. I saw on your website about the Mother Project that you had invited a number of people who I believe identify as professional dancers to, to come in and, and work with you on the collaboration. And I heard you say that you know things got somewhat deferred by the pandemic, but this is something that interests me a great deal because there are some groups... Um, because it isn't necessarily true that if you're a good artist, you're a good community artist. Not everyone who has skill and talent in making music or dance or, or, or visual art or whatever has developed commensurate skill in connecting with people, understanding people, listening to people, translating with and, and for people. And I'm wondering how you... Um, how that dynamic feels to you about working with people who are self-identified as professional artists and community members who don't necessarily see themselves in that category. Yeah, of course. So it's it's definitely been an evolving process in our work. And I think when um, when we started out, the, the boundaries were much clearer about like the professional artists and the non-professional performers. Um, it, it was probably a bit neater. And I guess as it's gone on, it's become a little bit more blurred because as we've gone on, we've employed professional performers who have the shared lived experiences of the subject matter that we're tackling. And that's felt really important, obviously, for the relatability of the, the between the, perfor- the professional and non-professional performers, but also um, to prevent the kind of otheringness of the people who are paid and, and unpaid in the room, that, that there's not a kind of like, oh, these people are the professionals and they're not like us or, you know, the, that p- potential... Um, so it felt really important, but then it does create um, it does create a bit more of blurred lines because obviously when you're working with quite with people's stories and autobiographical or kind of emotionally charged work, if you've got professional artists who are possibly going to you know have similar triggers or similar you know emotional responses to some of the subject matter, but their role is also about supporting the non-professional performers, it it can get a little bit, and I've got no answers to do, but it raises lots of questions, you know, about like, because I think through our work, we always try and look after everyone, you know, equally, and everyone is a human being with a, that might have a, like a bad day or a difficult experience. But there's also, 
there's a, a, a strange dynamic of that there's people in that room that are getting paid but might also be having th those things and there's people in the room that might be unpaid that you imagine might need a bit more support and their role might be a bit of a support so yeah there are some kind of questions and it's not always clear and 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 so yeah last year we we gathered a group of mother artists and we decided to bring the mothers into the studio first um, for some research and development before we engaged with non-professional performers so that we could I guess create that let them have the opportunity to to share their stories and explore their stuff you know in a safe kind of a residential kind of setting and then um and then they would be some of those performers would go on to then work with community performers but then they've kind of had the chance to go through it and talk about like the vulnerabilities or the things that might come up and and then would be clear because we don't normally the professional performers we're not working with their stories specifically they're not the protagonists in our work the protagonists the lead people who tell their stories are usually the non-professionals and the professional performers are there to actually help those people to find their voice and to feel comfortable moving or singing or speaking or whatever their skill set is so I think it, it's a really interesting one and again it's always this kind of like ebb and flow of um of how how you clarify how we clarify those roles and how we bring those th those people together and it definitely takes a whole other skill set that's not just about performing like you said Arlene it's um it's really like looking at people's like personality and how and, and so so in Man Up one of the dancers like Frankie was just a great amazing people person and just formed a great bond with like Mick who was the steward of the working men's club and would like play pool with him in breaks and, and actually we weren't always able to do that because we were so busy and he kind of broke a, a, a like whole other relationship within the, the venue and the other the, the people who use that venue because that was just a really natural thing for him and so to have a dancer who's also does that and will also climb a ladder to like help like put black out the windows you know so it, you're definitely not you're definitely not just working with the the skill set of the performer it's a whole other yeah skill set that it requires I think one of the one of the really important distinctions in this work is between people who acknowledge that it's full of grey areas and ambiguities and things that we can't get right and imbalances. And that's why I, I call the book A Restless Art, because it's always on a tightrope and sometimes you you've put your weight too much on one side or you've you know and then you adjust and you keep learning and I think acknowledging that is how we stay honest or it's one of the ways we stay honest it's it's if we pretend that that there are tidy solutions to it and to the to the ethical dilemmas that Arlene and I talk a lot about um generally I mean that sometimes there are but often there aren't and uh, it's important not, not to pretend that let me ask you a, a final question Claire um, as Arlene said uh, in her phrase we're very keen on this idea of a culture of possibility what are the possibilities that keep you hopeful and inspired in, in Stoke-on-Trent in your work what do you see um, what possibilities make it meaningful for you in the in the the years to come? Um, I think I, I I had to do a 
a workshop recently that was about artistic voice, which I found really hard because I think as a community practitioner, it's hard to know what your artistic voice is because often your work is about helping other people to find their artistic voice. So it really kind of forced me to look at what kind of underpins all our because we're not even working with one group of people to say well it's really important for you know we're working in Stoke-on-Trent but the themes change the people change sometimes the the methods and the the forms change um so I was really had to look it was forced me to look at the overview of like what what what, what am I doing it for what's in it for me and I think I realized that for, for me personally that I think with every show we create I think I'm I'm trying to create the, the Stoke-on-Trent or the world that I want to see and that I want to live in. And I think those things that are common to every kind of series of workshops or every show that we make are things around like authenticity, togetherness, connection, vulnerability and sharing stories. And, and that's the kind of world I want to live in. I want to exist in places and spaces where people are open and really listen to each other and take risks and connect and um so I I think I realized that that that's that's what's in it for me (laughs) is like but every time we do it we're kind of creating a little bit of that world for the people involved but for ourselves to exist in and I think obviously throughout this last year especially all the kind of divides in our societies have been really like highlighted and and you know for good reason a lot of the time but there's a lot of like polarization and I think this this sort of work creates real togetherness and just kind of gets to the core of um of uh kind of humanity sometimes and I think that that that's what I want for the world and that's what I'm hopeful about that we can create spaces for togetherness and for kind of healing some of those rifts especially from the pandemic that we can create a place for communities to to kind of come together and recover and relax and process and breathe deeply and sing and dance and celebrate um yes so that's what I'm hopeful about does that answer the question well, it's so it's so wonderful to talk with you, Claire, and so great to meet you. I'm I'm uh, I love looking at your website, and I want other people to do that too. We'll put a link on the meow.net site, but just give people the URL so that if they want to check it out immediately, they can. So it's www.restoke.org.uk. Fantastic! Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Claire. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.